You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I'm Kim Grenolds of Dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund, week six for University of Washington, who heads to Arizona State down in Tempe, Arizona for a one o'clock kickoff uh, against Arizona State. Tempe weather expected to be in the high 80s, low 90s. Looking at the weather report early, looks like we may have a slight chance of rain with some thunderstorms. So we'll see what happens when game week gets a little bit uh, closer. Game day gets a little bit closer. But uh, one o'clock kickoff the following week is a 2.30 kickoff at home. Uh, against Arizona, but 4-1 Washington heads to Arizona State. And we had a chance to talk to uh, coaches on Monday, players on Tuesday, and again, you know, the rest of the coaches on Wednesday. And we've also, at the end, we'll we'll talk about a big, uh, big commitment for the basketball team as well. But, you know, Coach DeBoer, a little bit, I would say, you know, he seems to be pretty much the same guy all the time. But when we talked to Kalen on Monday, he seemed a little bit more subdued than typical and maybe has a little to do with the loss. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, he was 69-3 and three, South Dakota State. He's not used to losing. I don't Whatever, 70-something in three, I think. But either, it doesn't matter either way. Yeah, he doesn't lose. And so, yeah, that's <laughs> – I don't. I, I watched it, and I didn't. I didn't get the sense that he was any different. And I think that's been common common denominator talking to all the coaches and players ever since the day he took the job is that he's the same guy, no matter you know teams up down whatever. Um, perhaps it was uh, after watching the game film. Yeah, I don't know. It it, it sounded like there was definitely a uh, they call it fess and fix, where you know the players and coaches kind of confess all the things that happened wrong and what they need to do to get right. And that's not, again, that's not just a player thing. That's a coach thing too. So I'm sure they, the coaches had plenty of things that they needed to correct too. And, you know, and also talking to, to Ryan Grubb and, and, um, and Chuck Morrell, it's just. Uh, William Inch. Was it Inch? Yeah, Inch was on Monday. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw Morrell today. But um, it's just a lot of things, obviously, that needed correcting. Um, we can talk about some of the very specific things. But overall, I thought, um, you know, I think DeBoer was happy most with the reaction, if anything, that the team, yeah, not only did it really stick in their craw and really bugged the hell out of them, talking to the players for sure it bugged them, but that they quickly got over it and were kind of chomping at the bit to, to get things right. It seemed kind of to me, you know, he didn't dwell on it, but I think the thing that he was probably most unhappy about from last week was the personal foul penalties and the penalties that put them in bad situations, you know, because clean that up and that second quarter may be different. You know, with the turnovers, you know, Michael, you know, I think one was a really good play by the uh, by the linebacker to pick off the pass, and I think the second interception was just a god awful interception. Uh, the fumble 
down at the goal line. Those things happen just in a bad situation. But uh, the personal foul by uh, Roger Rosengarden that took him from the five back to the 20 in the fourth quarter and uh, a couple of other th- penalties that uh, I think just kind of made him crazy. But those are things that you can clean up. Oh, absolutely can. And that's what they, it's the TNT, the takes no talent thing comes in that they that they preach about that guys in practice when they have a false start or they have a missed assignment or something like that. It's the takes no talent thing and the players have to go touch it. I'm sure Roger Rosengarten had to do something in that regard because, um, you know, I talked to Scott Huff today, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but I talked to Scott Huff today, and he said, I'm glad he stuck up for the quarterback, but we can't put ourselves in that situation. Even if it was an NBA-quality flop by or soccer flop from, from that UCLA defensive guy, it doesn't matter. You can't put yourself in that situation. Yeah, and I think the two things that came out of that UCLA game that they're really going to try to clean up, the one, of course, the penalties and turnovers, but I think the other thing is just that defensive backfield where they've just got a lot of youth back there in J- uh, Javon Banks and um, and uh, Javion Green. Devon, Devon, Devon Banks. Devon yeah. Banks. No, no, no. They ended up playing the freshman at the end for sure. And part of that, I mean, I think they were – I mean, they were – I'm sure they were trying to limit a little bit Jordan Perryman because he was coming back. And so I think they're trying to make sure that they're doing that in, in a prudent way. Um, but, yeah, not having Mish Powell available, not having guys like Asa Turner available, um, still not sure whether Elijah Jackson has been cleared or is available. Clearly he wasn't against UCLA. We'll see this weekend. Um, you know, not seeing guys like you know, people have been asking about Zakari Spears. We haven't seen Zakari Spears play a single down, even on special teams this year. So, um, no, he's practicing. No, he's out there. No, he's dressed. We've seen him out there. Just not sure exactly what's going on with him either. So, um, definitely starting to really, really get stretched along there. Guys like Julius Irvin have really stepped up and provided a lot of snaps for them. But there's no doubt that when they go back and, and – do the postmortem of this season, regardless of how it ends up. One of the things they're going to be looking at seriously in the in the portal, I would think, would be getting another quality uh, corner, or quality safety. And when you take a look at a guy like a Jordan Perryman, who looked really good all camp, and then he gets hurt, and it's taken a while for him to come back. But when you lose a guy like that, and he comes back. He's not 100% of the guy he was, you know, before he got hurt. So it takes a little while for those guys, you know, uh, to get back to that level. And it sure looked like Perryman isn't uh, – he may be cleared to play, but he's not playing at the level he was before he got hurt. And that's just going to take a little bit of time. Well, yeah, it's just getting their win back. And, and, I mean, Jackson Kirkland talked about it yesterday about just getting his win back. I mean, that he just didn't have um, the wind. And so I don't know how many – series he played did he play the entire first half of the Sanford game Kirkland yeah uh pretty sure yes okay. pretty sure he did so I don't think they changed anything until until the second, second half. half yeah so um but I mean Kirkland said it he said we can try and get in physical shape as much as we want but you know it's there's only so much you could simulate you just got to get out there and do it and and he said he just is still trying to get his win back and I think that's part of what uh, Jordan Perryman had to go through because he probably hasn't been practicing as much as he normally would if he was healthy. And the other big storyline from the game was that swap of you know, putting Fa'otanu back out at left tackle and moving Jackson Kirkland back in. And, you know, he addressed it, Jackson addressed it a little bit, you know, about moving back inside, you know, where, you know, he doesn't have his win back and that may be a little bit easier for him. Maybe, but again, much like Perryman and, and Kirkland, they were both lower leg, lower injuries. 
And so if you can't run, if you can't work on cardio, that's, that makes things that much more difficult. And so that's where I think, you know, coupled with what Scott's done in terms of trying to just, you can get into regular shape, but are you in football shape? They're two very different things. And so that's, I think those are the things that have been holding them back just a little bit. Yeah, you know, and Coach DeBoer told us on Monday that uh, Kirkland was the lineman of the week. Um, you know, from you guys, I'm sure you rewatched the game. You know, how did you feel with that switch? Um, I thought I understood it. Yeah, I understood why they did it. Um, I I would say that I, um, you know, I I don't know. Troy Fontanu had played so well at tackle. Um, I I didn't think it was a bad move. I thought he struggled at tackle more than I've seen him so far. But that is also just because. UCLA has some really good edge guys too. So, um, you know, is, is that something we're always going to see? You know, I asked Scott Huff about the holding penalties, and he was he said it was just bad technique on our part, bad hand placement, and uh, it's something we got to clean up, and we're working on it now. And and so he he doesn't expect to see holding penalties moving forward. You know, like what we saw. I mean, how many were there? There was at least there, five there was a or handful. Six. Yeah. What, what, what I think is disappointing, and I, if I'm Scott Huff, I'm I'm frustrated with this is that you go through the first four games, and I'm not saying that they were substantially cleaner on the offensive line in terms of the holes. It just didn't look like they were really being called, and it wasn't a point of emphasis. And you go from that, and now granted, he's absolutely right, and and you you still have to be fundamentally sound, and you still have to use the right techniques to avoid even, even putting yourself in a position where a hold could be called. But it has to be frustrating all of a sudden going into a game and you feel like you're probably doing a lot of the same things right, and yet those things are being called. Like the first holding call, I think, on Rosengarten, I didn't see it. I just mm-hmm. didn't see the hold. It just didn't look like a hold at all to me. Um, now, there was one, and I don't remember if it was on. I think it may have been on Rosengarten the second time. That one was pretty clear. To me, that, that should have been a hold that would normally be called. But again, I've seen them in the first four games before that where similar plays and certain techniques and certain things were done – and I just didn't see – they were not making the calls. So I'm just trying to figure out where's the consistency in the refereeing and the officiating to make it so that the coaches know how to coach the technique and coach the situations that these guys need to be in. Because all you're asking as a, as a coach is that the officials be consistent. That's it. If you're going to call a lot of holding and you're calling it on both sides, fantastic. We can adjust. But if you're just doing it indiscriminately and inconsistently – that's a big problem. And, Scott, we talked earlier about this with that move to Jackson Kirkland inside. You know, there were um, you know comments down on the field that NFL scouts wanted to see Kirkland inside. You'd had some discussions with some scouts, you know, and uh, they didn't seem to like Kirkland as much as Garden. I don't know if this week's performance and this coming week's performance is going to change that view at all. Yeah, I, I don't I, – I, when they said that they didn't like him inside, I – I was a little stunned because he maybe was, just been that one scout though too. No, there was four. Okay, four different scouts. Yeah. They all said the same thing. They're like, "Yeah, he's not a guard. He's a tackle." So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I asked him if it was a height thing. If it was, you know, because he he can't get down to, to, and they said no. He's his footwork was bad. His hand placement was bad. It, he's much better as a as a tackle. And so right tackle also. They don't feel he's a left tackle, but um, you know that. It's you know it's four scouts' opinion, 
Well, people also, have to, people also have to remember, too, that he started out his college career on the right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His first game starting was against Auburn back in, what mm-hmm. was that, 18? I mean, that was, it's just, you know, that this is where he started out. To see where he's come in that span of time is pretty remarkable that they've turned him into basically a fully left-sided guy when he basically played the first year mm-hmm. or so, uh, you know, on the right side. So you'd think, okay, is it just because he's ambidextrous? Is he just good that way? I kind of agree. I don't necessarily agree 100% with the mm-hmm. scouts, but the fact that they could see him as a right guard or right tackle, to me, yeah, I, I see a lot of merit in that because that's where he started, and it mm-hmm. seems like that's where the coaches at that time at Washington really thought that was going to be his best position. Yeah, and what's, and I think it might help because he's played uh, right guard, right tackle, left guard, left tackle, and that gives him a lot of flexibility in the eyes of some team. And we all know this, you know, sometimes it only takes one guy to fall in love yeah. with you. And some of these coaches think, I want that mm-hmm. piece of clay that I can mold, and they see his size and his intelligence because he's a really smart guy. Mm-hmm. And they think, okay, well, I, I mean, a guy like Chris Strasser might look at him and go, yeah, I want that guy. I can make him in. I can take him to that next level. Yeah, and well, and there's a guy who starts for um, the L.A. Rams at center who did all five positions at the University of Washington. Coleman. It's that versatility, Coleman Shelton. And, and the versatility is what really gets them because, hey, if, especially in the NFL where you're very limited on the amount of players that you can carry. I mean, how many players are they carrying along the offensive line? Like eight or nine, maybe ten on an yeah, offensive 53, line? 53-man roster, yeah. and you can only assign so many. Yeah, men. and so, you know, if they have a guy who can play two or three positions, that's going to be huge for him, and it's going to up his up his stock. Now, I don't think he's a first-day guy. He might not even be a second-day guy, but he's a guy that will get drafted in the NFL. Yeah, I think part of the reason also why maybe the NFL guys don't necessarily like him inside is that if you are an inside player, you've got to be thinking of guys like Nick Harris or Coleman Shelton, guys that have snapping experience, mm-hmm. guys that could go in as a center in an emergency, and he's never been asked to do that. Um you know, but it's the comment that you made, Kim, in, in terms of the, the NFL type stuff. I kind of laugh because it, it reminded me of, of the things that Gilby used to say. Um, I remember when he was talking about Nick Newton when, when Nick Newton signed with Washington. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I, I love that kid. I'm going to turn him into a 10-year holder in the NFL. <laughs> and, you know, it just stuck with me because I was like, yeah, I, I could see where you could you could think in the NFL, yeah, that's you're pretty much doing that because of, of the, you know, the amount of money you spend on quarterbacks and all yeah. that kind of stuff. But it is important to understand, I think, really it seems like his future has to be outside. Mm-hmm. It really does because of the, of the, the non-center six, type seven. experience. And he's 6'7". And, yeah. and I just always say, you know, it's just about, you know, going to the right place. And I think with a guy like Jackson Kirkland, if he goes to the right place, he can be a really have a long future in the NFL. If he goes to the wrong place where they're trying to fit that square peg into a round hole, mm-hmm. it could really stymie him too. Well, let's, let's think of a few, let's think of a, of a husky that ended up being a right tackle in the NFL right now. Caleb McGarry. Do we see a lot of Caleb McGarry in Jackson Kirkland? Yeah, I maybe because he's a right tackle, and yeah. that we, we see that, that he could. Now I don't remember honestly. You guys can can correct me. I don't remember how much right tackle he's played in college. We know he's played a lot of left tackle. We know he's played a lot of left guard. We know he's played a lot of right guard. And Caleb started for, what, three or four years, three and a half no, years? No, no, no. He started at, for, I think he got moved during the bowl game, his he, f- first or second year. His redshirt year. Yeah, his redshirt freshman so, year. But he started for three and a half years at right tackle. Yes. Yeah, he was a, and, he was a four-year starter. Yeah, he was a four-year starter, but he, yeah. it, was, it was half of one yeah. season. And, and he started for three and a half years at, right, at one 
position. Right. Whereas Jackson's bounced around, so that could be an issue. The big thing with Jackson is you just don't find guys that size and that smart. I mean, mm-hmm. he, like I said, he's a really intelligent kid, and he's massive at 340 pounds. I'm 5'8", 160 yeah. pounds. I have a bigger gut than Jackson Kirkland does. Yeah, I don't think he's 340, but yeah, I mean, I know that's what he's listed at, but he's even said I think he's down to 315 or 310. But yeah. still, that's still a massive human being. Yeah, he's big. And and um, he does move really well for a guy his size. Yeah. Um, you know, just also talking to Ryan Grubb on um, – Monday. On Monday. You know, he just seems to say that, you know, hey, we had, we had a bad second quarter. We need to clean it up. And, you know, Michael made a couple of uh, bad uh, – one bad read and a really bad decision and then the, the fumble down on the goal line, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's just it, – it seemed like to me, you know, a lot of people are asking why do they make that call down on the goal line. And, you know, it's like uh, you know, DeBoer said, you know, I never even thought that well, that would be well, – both of them. Both, yeah. both of them said it. They yeah. said that we never once had an exchange problem. Yeah, no. And that's the thing. That's, if that's you, football. If you look at the body of work and you look at the total number of reps on film that they get throughout spring and fall, and granted, I don't know how many toss plays they're throwing goal line scenarios in practice or in camp. I don't remember seeing too many myself. But if you you have to go by their word. I don't think they're I don't think they're lying. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think they're trying to intentionally mislead people when they say this. I think they genuinely are like yeah, we've never had a bobble toss anywhere in the field at any point during spring or fall. We're running this. So ask yourself, what makes more sense? That they had problems with it and they still decided to do it? Right. Or that they never had a problem with it and decided it wasn't an issue? Well, and, and, yeah, yeah, the other thing, too, is is that it, it sounds like, I think, if, if there was a way where you could extrapolate that play mm-hmm. and keep it going where Talapapa actually cleanly gets yeah. that ball – it sounds like, you know, they got two high safeties, they're deeper. Yeah. It sounds like th- there were lanes to run, and they could have probably gotten a first down out of it. Well, and also talking to Ryan Grubb, you know, you talk to him, and, you know, the play he's called, he's thinking two or three plays ahead, mm-hmm. you know, so that play is setting something up for the next play and the next play and something further down the road. So, um, you know, keep that in mind too. Yeah, that was – well, that series kind of was my – that turning point of the game I mean it's still so early in the game to say that but you know I didn't call the safety the turning point though it was the drive off of the free kick by the way I don't know if I've ever seen a free kick on a safety that was phenomenal where it resulted in them starting at their own seven yeah inside the ten and and so they started their own seven and I'm like oh okay so they give up two points they they hold them to a punt and Washington will get the ball back and we'll be right back on track and then UCLA proceeds to go 97 yards or 93 yards the other way, you know, in what, nine plays or whatever, and they just couldn't get off the field and all that. And that really was the turning point of the game. I don't think it was the safety so much as it was the drive. Yeah. You know, and just we had a chance to talk to a ton of players on Tuesday, you know, and I had a chance to talk to Michael Penix, who uh, threw out the first pitch for the Mariners uh, earlier this week. And, you know, he talked about how he had played baseball you know, all coming up, um, you know, through school. But, uh, you know, so it was interesting to talk to Michael about that. But, you know, it was also, you know, talk to him about, like I said, that first interception where that was a pass that, you know, he's completed numerous times this year. And he completed, you know, he's throwing it to the outside receiver, you know, who's running towards the, um, towards the boundary. And what I saw on TV, and it sounds like Michael saw the same thing, when he went to throw the ball, it was a linebacker back in coverage, 
he was running towards the center of the field, you know, with his back to that wide receiver. But the minute Michael started to throw the ball, that guy changed direction and went right over there. So I thought it was a hell of a play by linebacker. Yeah, he linebacker. came off of his man and dropped right into the area where he was throwing it. Yeah, it was, yeah it was and Michael a great play. Com- and Michael had completed that pass numerous times. Well, what about the one that he threw to Rome? I think it was in the second half where he throws it up over those guys, and Rome goes up and makes an unbelievable catch. Yeah. That was the same throw that was picked off. Yeah. Later on, when he threw it down the down, it was the same pass. Yeah, it was just different coverage. Yeah, I think the guy, like I said, I, I I give a lot of credit to the linebacker who made that interception. But you know, the second one that he threw was just, I think he tried to force it, and he was frustrated and tried yeah. to make a throw. You know, and I think he admitted that. Yeah. yeah, he admitted that in the thing. I mean, that's a throw I shouldn't have made. But I think what people need to remember is this was the first time when they had been down all season mm-hmm. behind. Because mm-hmm. we talked about it. It's like, is this the first time they've been behind? All- yeah, I was like, yeah. yeah. This is the first time they've been behind. So, yes, it's still early in the game. And, and you think given his demeanor for being calm, collected, in the huddle, in the pocket, all those things. You know, and he's been through so many of these games. It's just, you know, he wouldn't panic. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't try to maybe do exactly what you said, Kim, in terms yeah. of forcing the issue. But that, you know what? You know, it's human point, nature. It's human nature in the back of your head, going, you know what? But, I got to make a play. But, but, he, but he didn't. He didn't. You know, again, good, good pass dealt with with a better play on the back end by where, the defense. But where he tried to force that pass when they came out in the third quarter, I think he learned from trying to force it because. That's when he I, threw the pass to Odunzi. Well, I think yeah. everybody was kind of surprised on their first drive in the third quarter. You know, he was checking into run plays, and he wasn't panicking. He was staying with the game plan, and he wasn't getting out of his lane. You know, at the end of the you know uh, fourth quarter, you know, they had a chance to, if they could have made a stop, they could have got the ball back. And I think everybody would have thought that they could have come back and scored on that. I thought they could have. Well, they scored every single drive. Yeah. Now, but just a lot of – But they got fourth downs. But just a lot of – fourth downs and stuff. I want to get back but, to this. Just no. a lot of credit for not deviating from the game plan. And that's what I was most impressed with in that second half. They didn't try to hurry it up, like, you know, and take they, the chances. I think they did get a little away from the game plan in the first half. Yes, in the second they, quarter. Yeah, because and, – and I think that's what Ryan Grubb was talking about and, and DeBoer, that they had a bad second quarter. And I think you could put that on the coaches, but also on the players. And, um, you know, they, you know what? One bad quarter is enough to really screw you in this game. And, well, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead to talking to the players, but you, you, they, they break this thing up into three. They talk about the 1-0 and o thing mentality. Well, there's 1-0 and o mentalities, and there's three different phases of this game that they look at. They talk about the start. they got to start strong. And then they talk about what they call the middle eight. Mm-hmm. which is the final four minutes of the first half, first four minutes of the second half. they got to win that part of it, and then they've got to finish the game. Well, what was the part of the game where they definitely lost? It was that middle eight. And so you're talking about the end of the, the second half, the beginning of the first half, where they got the field goal to finish the half, and then they went down, and they instead of being able to get a stop, UCLA went right down the field and scored. Kim, that, was, that was the defining moment. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Kim, you need to, we need to share about Michael Penix's quote of the week, though. <laughs> You people people, saw, people saw it on the boards, hopefully. <laughs> well, he just said the quiet part out loud is all he did. Yeah. Well, about just, hydrating. About hydrating. You know, it's, yeah, it's just kind of a fact. Yeah, I, I drink until my pee is clear. <laughs> yeah. I it, mean, as someone who's, who's working at losing weight and trying to drink more water, that's what my doctor said. You're, you're, you should have a real slight yellow twinge to your urine yeah. everything it needs to, that means you're hydrated. and i'm usually the one that's doing all the weird stuff out here and DeBoer even said it though he you know he talked about how you know usually the coaches are trying to lead by example and they're trying to, mm-hmm. to to set the pace when it comes to making those kinds of good decisions making sure you're drinking enough water during the day mm-hmm. things like that he goes but when you go from a place like fresno where it can be hot and humid and you're, and you're dealing with a lot of temps and you naturally drink a lot of water to up here you get lulled into this false sense of like oh it's nice and cool mm-hmm. everything's good he goes yeah i don't drink anywhere near as much water as i sp- as i'm supposed to anyway and so it i think it's difficult for these guys i think they really have to make a concerted effort because the weather here does not basically lead one to want to drink a lot of water because most people do it why when they're hot mm-hmm. when they when they feel like they're they're getting dehydrated that doesn't happen that much here yeah and one of the things i'm looking forward to seeing in the arizona state game is the two things that um you know were kind of absent from the ucla game and uh number one is takeaways they had no takeaways and that's one of the things that they're really big on and they just didn't have any um, and the other thing was uh, Braylon Trice, you know, got to DTR a couple times on their first drive. They pretty much shut him down where they were using, uh, you know, chip blocks from the running backs to slow him down. So, you know, getting that pressure on the quarterback, you know, ZTF, you know, wasn't in the backfield that much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Jeremiah Martin wasn't in the backfield that much. And I think we're going to see a little more. That's I'm sure it's going to be a point of emphasis. Hey, Kim, you were on the sidelines, by the way. Yeah. Did Jeremiah Martin flex over DTR when he sacked him? Not that I saw. He walloped him on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because DTR didn't see him running behind him, turned, and then he just laid him out. I think that was kind of payback for the hit DTR took on uh, Tuatele. Yeah. Well, so, well, I don't know about payback. No, but yeah, but but the the thi- I'm sorry. The the other thing is you talk about not getting takeaways, and yes, they did not get a turnover. But you could call both of those fourth down stops yeah. as turnovers. You yeah. could count both of those. I that one at the end do. of the first half. As much as it was great to see it on the first drive, that one at the end of the first half, that game would have been put away. Yeah. The other thing too, I was going to say, in talking to to um, Coach Schmidt this week. He mentioned that because you, you talked about Braylon Trice, Kim. He, and one of the things was, if people noticed, they really leaned on Trice and Martin a lot more in the rotations than they had in the previous four games. He said a big part of that was due to those sudden change plays. Those interceptions really altered how they, you know, you immediately have got to go. And when you immediately got to go, what do you usually do? 
you put in your best guys. Well, there was a point in the second quarter where I just looked at the defense coming off the field, and even going back out on third down, they were gassed. I mean, just absolutely gassed, yeah. you know, getting run up on, and then, um, you know, the hurry-up offense where they're not able to substitute. Those guys were just, I mean, I saw a couple of defensive linemen come off the field, and they got, I mean, they got to the sidelines, and, man, they were huffing and puffing, you know, not ready to go. Yeah, it's interesting because, you you know, we, we obviously have talked all week about ASU to the coaches and players, and, you know, you really look, if you start to break down what ASU has done, especially like on offense, for instance, you see what they did against um, USC, and they scored, I don't know, 25, 26, whatever it was. They scored a fair amount of points against them. And you look at their offense and go, okay, they've got a, Emory Jones, very athletic, kind of almost, not dual threat-ish, but he is an athlete, can run, very DTR-like. For 700 yards, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. DTR-like. And um, and then you look at X uh, Valade, the, the running back, I think, from Wyoming, transfer. Mm-hmm. He, he's a really, really good running back. You look at Elijah Badger, he's leading the line for their receiving core. He made some big plays against USC. And then you start to look at their statistics. Their stats don't match up at all. No. So I was asking coaches about that this week, and, and it's just like, yeah, that's that's a situation where the stats are extremely misleading because the biggest thing is they're not getting on the field near enough. Mm-hmm. And so this is the classic case where Washington has to go back to what they did the first four weeks. They need to attack from the start. They need to get up on the leaderboard, and then they've got to – once they get up, weather the storm. then they've got to not just weather the storm, but they've got to be able to attack and take it to Arizona State when Arizona State's offense is on the field because they can be, um, they can be very effective, but yet they don't convert very well on third down. They, they don't really have a super strong running game if you can kind of control X. There, there's just some things about this team for, for some reason. You watch them, and it just doesn't jive to what they're doing statistically. And so that's where, you know, Washington's got to – they've got to do a much better job of coming out and, and, and really starting with their hair on fire and talking to Coach Schmidt. He talked about that and how they've got to bring their own energy when they're road dogs. Anything jump out at you with your conversation with any of the players on Tuesday? No, just – you know, it was good to talk to um, Javion Green. You know, the first time I remember talking to him, the true freshman, cornerback uh, from Houston. Uh, I think asked, that was his first time. Yeah, asked him, you know, asked him if this was going to be a little bit more of, a, of an easier game for him because he's going to be one of the few guys that can probably, you know, at least relate to ninety degree temperatures and, and that Texas, kind of thing. Yeah. He said that he actually thinks that, uh, he's going to have some family members out there on Saturday, which will be fun for him. Uh, probably hasn't seen them for a little while, so that was good talking to him. It was good talking to Alex Cook because he really expressed his frustration because I asked him what it was like, you know, on the, on the plane ride home after that game. And he goes, man, that's just, that sucked. He goes, just knowing that we were going to have to go through film study, knowing that we were going to have to fess up to every, everything we had done bad. He goes, and I already had the laundry list of things that I knew I had screwed up on. And so you could, you could, you could sense a lot of the frustration, but you could also sense the excitement because he knows how quickly things can bounce back for these guys because they understand it. They're in the process of fixing those things. And so that was really good to, to hear him talk that way, especially being one of the leaders of the defense. Yeah, just also just real interesting. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Juice Brown, you know, about just, you know, how you take a, you know, a guy from 
uh, Devon Banks and calm him down without taking the stinger away from him. So we talked a little bit about that. But I asked uh, Juice, you know, how you take a freshman, you know, like Banks or Green and not let, you know, those big plays absolutely destroy their confidence. And, you know, he talked a little bit about that. And, I, and he says it's just kind of welcome to college football. And I asked him if he had a welcome to college football memory. And he said, yeah, my first game against Idaho, first play, I gave up a long touchdown pass, mm-hmm. you know. So you got to bounce back from that stuff so he survived yeah yeah he survived so it's always fun because i think sometimes you know the fans out here you get the helmets off of these players sometimes and it's shocking sometimes how young they look because they are well the thing is kim you're getting older they're getting younger i mean realistically (laughs) because i mean it's just yeah, I'm I'm 12 and never going to grow up. But uh, anyways, just um, also uh, anything else from the week that you guys want to talk about before I get into basketball a little bit? No, no. Like I said, I, w- I was I was I was glad to talk to Coach Schmidt because I was kind of curious as to you know how would they would approach this week, understanding you know that is their first loss here at Washington. How do they bounce back? How they've seen the players bounce back? Um, you know, maybe trying to go back on the road right away if that's considered, you know, maybe something that they can use to their benefit. And really, it was interesting what he said. He goes, because he goes, at the end of the day, he goes, it shouldn't matter at all where we play. And it doesn't matter if we play on grass, turf, you know, sand. It really shouldn't matter. At the end of the day, we have to be accountable and bring it ourselves. And we have to be able to show that we can attack from the start instead of having to react to everything that they're doing. Because you know, some of the things that they'll see at Arizona State, for instance, they may do a little bit more play action than like UCLA did, for instance. And when you're the edge players in a play action scheme, there's that slight moment of hesitation when the ball is disappeared and the quarterback has it. And is he going to hand it off to the to the back or is he going to step back? Mm-hmm. And it's just the, those little moments that can define, you know, how the success of the player or if the defense can blow it up. And so we talked a little bit about that. I thought uh, I thought he had some some really interesting comments about that. Yeah, and just one more reminder. You know, we're we're taking quotes out of the conversations that we have. But if you want to get the full full stuff, you know, just the context, and you get a lot more from listening to the audio on that. So you know, don't hesitate, especially you know, with on your smartphone and you have the Bluetooth in your car, and instead of turning on you know sports radio, just you know, go to the Dogman Radio Archive and listen to a lot of the audio. I think it'll give you a better feel. Um, for the players and coaches by listening to the tone of voice they use and the voice inflection. And I think you just get so much more out of the audio than just scanning the quotes. So, you know, just uh, always look for that Dogman Radio uh, on the message board. And we've got everything archived there. And like I said, you know, when you've got your commute home or you're on the bus or on the train or just doing some work around the house, it's a good way to get your Husky football fix because you don't get a lot of it on radio right now. But uh, big day for uh, Husky hoops. And they got a commitment from the number two shooting guard in the country. Some have him ranked as the 30th best overall player. Some have him as top 15. In Wesley Yates out of uh, Beaumont, Texas, he's a, he's a cousin of uh, Quincy Pondexter, and a lot of credit to Quincy Pondexter for getting this kid. Um, he's 6'4", 210 pounds. He's thick. He's really thick and can really shoot the ball. Um, Chris, just, you know, I'm sure you've taken a look at some of his video. What do you see out of Wesley Yates? Well, I think that, you know, first and foremost, when you're a shooting guard, you better know how to shoot. And he definitely knows how to shoot. He he can get – it looks like to me he can get streaky without having seen a lot of, like, full games 
of him, it looks like he's he's got a streaky shot with him. Um, I don't know if it's like C.J. Wilcox type streaky, but that would be nice of it. If, if he can shoot it at all like C.J., that's, that's a plus. But I believe him when he tells you that, you know, he pretty much – is going to try to do anything he can to help his team win, whether that means getting a rebound, whether that means playing defense, whether that means you know making a key assist uh, on an easy bucket or something like that, making free throws. Um, he just looks like a gamer to me, and it sounds like he was a guy that was kind of you know doing some doing some things, doing some things, and then he got on the AAU circuit this last summer and just really blew up. Yeah, and he said, you know, that he looks at himself not strictly as a shooting guard. He thinks he can handle the ball and play point as well. Yeah, I think he called himself a combo guard. So, And that's something that would really benefit Washington and they really need because they need another guy who can handle. But, you know, when you talk about the size of him at 6'4", 210, compared to, um, you know, uh, Keon Menefield who's 6'2", and 145, He's or, a, or Terrell Brown or a, or a, or a Quad A Green. This kid you know, this, is thick. Yeah, this kid, he's he's a, well, yeah, he's he's a tree trunk. He's gonna look more like who? Who would he be more like? Would he be more like a, like a Noah Williams? Noah's, no, a, Noah's pretty thin. No, but I mean in terms, of, but he's more like six five, right? Six four, yeah. six five. So yeah, he's gonna be like a thicker version of Noah. To me, he looks like a. I mean, I, this is kind of wild, but he looks like a compact version of Jamal Williams when Jamal showed up. Okay. Because Jamal was, uh, I think Jamal was a little bit heavier upper body, but he's got the um, Jamal Williams lower body already. Yeah, well, I don't think he's going to bang like Jamal, though. Yeah, well, I could see him putting on 10 pounds upper body and being 6'4, 220. So um, I'm trying to think of who they've had, you know, built like that. But um, he's pretty well. But I think the most, you know, and you heard the conversation I had with him, Chris. The I think the number that really stands out is that 3.9 GPA. Yeah, no, he's obviously he's an intelligent kid. Um, listening to his comments on, on what stood out about Washington, especially when he was really kind of getting down to the final moments and making his decision, you know, talked about we, we've always talked in the long term, whether we're talking about football players, basketball players, high-level kids, that there's going to be two types. There's going to be the kind that really need their inner circle, their family close to them so that they can mature. And really, you know, they need that support system. And then there's guys that have that in them already and have gotten as far as they need to locally, and they need to go out and have an experience in order to mature and grow and find out who they really are. And he certainly fits the mold of the latter type kid. Well, just it's interesting because, you know, that five-win team they had, I mean, the chemistry on that team was as bad as I've ever seen. I mean, they just had a bunch of guys that, you know, the off-court stuff was more important than the on-the-court. There was a lot of selfishness and a lot of egos. And, you know, Coach Hop flushed that. He flushed that team. And I give a lot of credit to Hope Coach Hop for willing to do it, but the big influence on that was also Coach Pete. He had a lot of conversations and still is with Coach Pete about how important culture is because that team had no culture. Last year's team, huge improvement. And I think this upcoming year, it's even a bigger improvement on the culture. When you talk about a guy like uh, Frank Kepnong, you know, who's majoring in computer science and wants to specialize in robotics, and you talk to him and his work ethic and how hard he wants to work. You talk to, uh, you know, a guy like uh, Braxton Mia, great kid, even uh, Noah Williams. Noah's got some of that 
you know, uh, we can't get profane, but he's got some of that. Mike Victor used to say he had some of that in his throat. You know what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about, Kim, and I, I would also say, too, that... Um, but Noah's a great kid, too, out of O'Day. We know that Wesley is also the kind of kid that gets up every morning at 5 in the morning to go work out. Yep. I mean, this is a kid that has a really supreme work ethic, and he's going to be he's going to be given an environment where he can really grow and improve and things like that because he's always going to have that available to him he's always going to have guys that he can go run with and shoot with he's going to find out very quickly how big the seattle hoops community is and it's only going to keep growing now with with the with the momentum going with the sonics and things like that coming back potentially i, I assume they're coming back but who knows um so yeah i think there's there's so many reasons why i think this is a great fit for him but the other thing I would say, too, with Hop and re- rearranging the culture, too, Kim, I think the big piece of that was, too, is that the zone was always a key tenant, and it was always the diff- one of the big difference makers for him. And it was such a big part of his culture when he came from Syracuse, and he got away from that. And he didn't really recruit for size and length and all that stuff. He's done that again. He's gotten back to the length and the size. So when you think about the top of the zone with a guy like Yates and a guy like Noah Williams – or some of these other, even a guy like Cole Bajima with his size going out there. Um, now all of a sudden you're starting to get back to some of the core fundamental things that Pop was raised on and really believed strongly in. And I, I know he got away from that a little bit, but again, whether it was the conversations with Coach Pete and trying to get back to the basics, trying to get back to his core beliefs, I think that was a huge part of it. Well, in addition, you know, his staff, you know, um, Will Conroy has really matured the last couple of years as a coach, and I think he's a future head coach. And then bringing in Wyking Jones to work with the bigs, and Wyking did wonders uh, last year with the bigs, and I expect him to, you know, uh, work wonders with Kapnang and Mia, and then adding Quincy Pondexter, where Quincy may not have the experience, but... Quincy's got that dog in him. I mean, he's aggressive and tough and hard-nosed, and he's really well-connected in the recruiting circles and bringing Braxton Mia and uh, Wesley Yates in, and he's got that youthful exuberance on there, and they want to be here. So I think it's a huge upgrade on the staff and um, really looking forward to Husky basketball this year. Yeah, and looking specifically at how that all works with, with getting a guy like Wesley Yates He's talked about trying to get away from the family, have an experience, learn, have a new chapter in his life, grow, find out who he is. Um, I think as a parent, what's going to make that more palatable, what's going to make that go down a little easier, oh, yeah, his cousin's here who was also an assistant coach. That's going to make me feel good because that's going to be like a parent away from home, and that just kind of adds to the comfort level. Well, looking down the road, when he gets here, the only guy that they're losing off of the roster is going to be Jamal Bay. You know, and he's a – I mean, he, I think he could easily step in for Jamal Bay. A lot of people think uh, Keon Brooks may leave, you know, for the NBA after this year. I'm not so sure of that. And if they can return that entire team minus Jamal Bay and add Wesley Yates and everybody's a year older – this year, I think, is going to be really good, but I think the following year, they could be a force. Yeah, I, I definitely think in a vacuum, it's very easy to look at Wesley Yates replacing Jamal Bay, and off you go. So that's where you start to look at those other pieces and whether or not a Keon Brooks decides to stay. You know, that's obviously the big X factor moving in. But for the first time in a few years now, you're, two things are happening. You're not necessarily having to rely on the portal for mass culture change from year to year, like he's had to do the last couple of years. The other thing is, is that because the continuity is there, 
you can actually start to think about how these pieces are going to move in the short term and also in the long term. And that's that's got to be that's got to be something I think Washington fans have to be very pleased with. You said rely on the portal and um I'll take a little exception out of that. I think they needed to rely on the portal last year. But when you take a look at what they brought in at the portal, every one of those guys had multiple years of eligibility. And if you had a choice, and, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit, if you had a choice to have when basketball, not football, but in basketball, given the choice, would you rather have the number one high school recruiting class or the number one portal class in the country because I'll take the portal because those guys are experienced and you have a little bit older team and that's what they're going to have this year is a little bit older team but they can fill in the gaps with the portal and make a difference in a, in a vacuum the portal yes I would take a portal class over over a high school recruiting class that said there are no guarantees with any of this stuff Kim you talked about getting guys <coughs> with multiple years remember one of the guys that also had multiple years Matthews he gone yeah and no one expected it these things, these guys change at the drop of a hat, and the more these guys get comfortable with the portal, the more these guys get comfortable with changing their environment and moving on. So you can't again; it's it's it can become a vicious cycle if you don't necessarily get the right fit. Well, that's why when you bring in a guy like Wesley Yates, it's going to be different than bringing in. Um, uh, Jaden McDaniels and Isaiah Stewart because you needed to depend on those guys to contribute and play big. Same with Marquise Chris and um, uh, DeJounte Murray. With uh, Yates coming in, he doesn't need to be the guy because he's got an older guys around him, and I think that's the way the one-and-dones work if you bring them in and they have the experienced guys around I don't him. disagree, and I think that, that will, I think that will show itself to be a fundamental change in philosophy for Hop. He's going to still have to have that core group so that he can supplement with one-and-done guys instead of making the one-and-done guys his core for, for, for mm-hmm. wanting success. You know, that said, again, Emmett Matthews was supposed to be a core fundamental piece of this year's team, a local kid yeah. who came back. He was supposed to stay, and he didn't. The, the portal can be a fickle mistress. With, I, that's why I don't think you want to necessarily rely on it for everything you're doing. I, I think it's great to fill in, but again, I think it comes back to recruiting to the culture here, where if he can have that base of the high school kids that are three- and four-year players and then fill in with the portal guys as needed, I think that's probably going to be the philosophy. Um, like I said, you know, if you can have eight to nine core players on your team and bring in you know, one portal guy or possibly two portal guy, but I think they've gotten to the point now where they don't need to bring in four or five, and uh, I think that's probably going to be the philosophy going forward. And, yeah, and if you're a Washington fan, I think you've got to hope that that's the case, that you can really specifically target the portal like Washington did with this last rec- recruiting class for football. You find the very specific points of need and get those guys because you never know how this thing is going to pan out. Scott Eklund over here, bored to tears, talking basketball. Wrap I'm it up. Not bored. <laughs> wrap, not bored. Wrap it up for Scott. Uh, good week. Um, you know, it sounds like the coaches are pretty encouraged about the way the players have reacted to this loss, first loss in the in DeBoer's uh, re- regime here, and and uh, I think Washington is going to bounce back in a in a good way. Will they beat Arizona State, a place that they haven't won in something like 20-some-odd years? 2001. Yeah, 2001, 21 years. So 
will they win that game? I don't know. But um, I think Washington's going to come out and give it their best shot. And, and uh, I think Arizona State is beatable, but they're not as bad as a lot of people think they are. Scott Huff said today, uh, they're the best one in four team I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, this this team is is not as bad as their record says, and Washington's going to have a game, but uh, I think they're going to they're going to come out and put their best foot forward. Chris Fetters, yeah, they haven't won in Tempe since 2001, but then again, the Mariners haven't been in the playoffs since 2001, and guess what's happening? So I'm taking that as a positive sign. I'm not I'm not necessarily predicting a win. I, I'm thinking that way. I'm leaning that way. But I think, yeah, overall, if I would totally echo Scott Huff's thoughts that they're the best four, one and four team that I've seen, because again, you you watch that USC game, they're getting down, up and down the field, they're making things happen. Um, the only reason that I think offensively that they're not more in line with the statistics that you would expect after watching a game like that is just I don't think they're getting enough chances. Mm-hmm. I think that's because they can't their defense can't get off the field. Their defense is not really creating a lot of pressure. Their defense isn't really doing much on the back end. This has got to be a situation where Washington smells blood in the water and they go after it quick like they did the first four games of the season. they got to go back to the formula that worked for them really, really well to start with. And I think they understand that. I got the sense that they've really moved on quickly from the loss. I think it stuck with them. That 24 hours really sucked when you talk to the players, guys like Alex Cook. But they've moved on, and, they've, and, and they're fixing a lot of things. But, again, it's going to come down to some of those things that showed up on Friday night that just hadn't shown up all year, like tackling. That was just such a weird thing that they just all of a sudden forgot how to tackle, apparently. And, 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 but to the credit of the coaches and players, they've all acknowledged it. They're like, yeah, we don't understand it. It, for, it was lack of focus. Maybe it was lack of energy. It was a lack of something. But they're hard at work addressing it, and we'll see, how, we'll see how successful they are come Saturday. The season just flies by. We're five games in already. You know, come Halfway Jan- through the season. Yeah, I mean, we, there's so many times during the year where, God, football just seems so far away. But when we do it, the season just seems to fly by, you know, because we go right from football where we've got basketball. And then as soon as basketball is done, we're back into spring football. And then May is really busy in recruiting. And then it just seems like football is just so far away. These games are so far away. And, um, you know, I was talking to um, – you know, Coach DeBoer one time, um, I knew a guy who played in the NFL, and this was probably he played 25 years ago. But he said back then, and I think it's even more so now, but he said it was 40 hours worth of preparation for uh, 60 minutes of game time. And you stop and think about that, and I think it's even more so now how much time they put in to play for a game. But, boy, these games are so few and far between sometimes it seems like, and when we're doing it, time just flies. So enjoy the season. I am. Uh, so, um, just, a uh, just a reminder, um, for those who aren't subscribers to dogman.com, um, we're not going to be running a promo for a while, but I think the biggest promo, uh, advantage to signing up when we don't have a promo is right now, uh, for $99 for the yearly subscription. If you subscribe now for the yearly subscription after your seven day trial period, you'll have access to Paramount plus. And why is that a big deal right now? Um, uh, 
Paramount Plus will be um, releasing Top Gun Maverick out uh, for free uh, if you have the subscription. That will be uh, available on Paramount Plus coming up sometime very soon. So you'll have access to that, you know, and you'll have a full year of access to Paramount Plus. And there's a lot of great stuff out there. So, uh, you know, if you're looking to subscribe to Paramount Plus, subscribe to Dogman Ahead instead and tell your wife or your bride or whoever it is that, hey, you know, it's Paramount Plus and we're getting Dogman for free. So, um, you know, just keep it tuned in here at dogman.com. So for all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grenolds along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. Go dogs. It's the NFL offseason, but I'll pick six. Part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Deucible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found.